Corinthians 5. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll be reading from verse 17 down through verse 21. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses upon them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, Now then, uh, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the title of the Bible study tonight, really the theme of 2 Corinthians, is this, Reconciliation Requires... Humility. Reconciliation requires humility. Let's pray. Lord, I ask tonight that you would um, help us as we seek to understand yet another book of the Bible. And Lord, while this passage is familiar to most of us that have been going to church for a while, Lord, it may not be familiar within the context of the rest of the book. And Lord, much of the rest of this book can go largely ignored. But God, what an important book. And so as we dive in tonight and seek to understand this book in its historical context, would you Grant us uh, wisdom, uh, a keen mind. No doubt, Lord, there's many people here tonight that are weary from a long day of work. And so, Lord, would you strengthen their mind and their bodies and give them the ability to be able to listen and glean something tonight from the sermon and from your word that will help sharpen their spiritual sword, make them a better believer and more in the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We've been... uh, uh, we spent the last two Wednesday nights going over the book of 1 Corinthians. And we said that the verse, uh, book of 1 Corinthians was Paul's writing to the church uh, over a lot of sin that was in the church. People had reported back to Paul some very hideous things that were going on in the church. Arguments and fights uh, between uh, people over personalities of traveling evangelists. There was, uh, there, were, uh, there was rampant fornication running through that church, and that had gotten back to Paul. And so he addressed those specific illustrations and uh, even named people uh, who were living in sin and told the leaders of the church it's their job to remove those folks for that particular sin. The third section of Corinthians uh, dealt with uh, uh, the fact that they were struggling with uh, service Items and their structure of their service was bent out of shape and wrong. And on and on through the book it went, uh, five different sections dealing with five different struggles. I'm sorry, the third had to do with Christian liberty and the abuses of Christian liberty. The fourth had to do with service structure type issues. And the fifth had to do with those who didn't even believe in the resurrection and were questioning the need to have the resurrection. And so Paul finds out about that and he writes a scathing letter in the book of 1 Corinthians 
to the church. Well, I want to tonight to set up Second Corinthians, give you the timeline of the Corinth church. So these will come up one at a time here. And if you want to find a place to jot these down, that would be good. It will help give you the background you need to know exactly uh, why Second Corinthians was written and what its purpose was. Okay, so first note that in A.D., or 50 years after Christ, uh, Paul plants the church of Corinth. So that was the very first thing. Paul plants the church. And uh, Acts 18 has the record. We'll look, at, we'll, we'll look at Acts 18 in just a moment. But Paul sails into the port at Corinth. And he goes about uh, there and he establishes, meets a bunch of people and sees a bunch of the pagan folks saved and gathers them into a church. Uh, the next thing on the uh, timeline here, A.D. 54, Paul writes First Corinthians. So uh, A.D. 54, at this point, he's in the city of Ephesus. He's getting that church planted. That's when the message comes to him about all of the problems in the church. And so Paul writes... 1 Corinthians, uh, A.D. 54, the church rejects his letter. Now, how would you feel if you got that letter? How would we handle it if somebody from the outside of our church, maybe Pastor Brown were to write a letter. He started the church here. And he writes a scathing letter that gets in everybody's face. Boy, a whole bunch of us wouldn't like that. And we read 1 Corinthians and we detach ourselves emotionally from that situation. And we take ourselves out and think, well, that was thousands of years ago. So, yeah, I can study it from an intellectual standpoint. Emotionally put yourself there. You're in the church and you get that letter. And everybody's toes get stepped on. The church did not accept the letter very well. In fact, they rejected the letter outright uh, and we'll get more into the reasons why in just a minute. A.D. 55, Paul makes his second visit to Corinth. Turn over to chapter 2 in verse number 1 of Second Corinthians here. Now, remember that Paul's writing uh, what we're about to read and what happened is in the past. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. Why? Because he had come once in heaviness. Paul had made a trip after his letter had been rejected. Now, his letter was bold. His letter was in your face. His letter was hard-hitting. But when he arrived, again, reading through the book, you learn this. When he arrived, he had a much softer and a much kinder approach to the folks in an attempt to try to get them to accept him and use uh, uh, see uh, his worth again and to sort of... Fix the situation. So Paul writes, the, uh, Paul, um, uh, uh, the church rejected the letter. Paul made a second visit. And uh, we don't get an idea that that necessarily went very well either. So the next step in this is that Paul writes a potential second letter to Corinth. Paul writes a potential second letter to Corinth. Now, I have the word potential in there. There is uh, uh, some debate amongst Bible scholars as far as how many letters Paul wrote directly to the church of Corinth. Now, we know that Paul wrote a lot of letters that did not make it into the Bible. Not everything Paul penned was Scripture. Uh, some of it was Paul writing. Sometimes Paul just wrote letters that, for instance, Paul would write a letter to the churches of Macedonia. 
a, a large grouping of churches and one church would read it and they'd pass it along to the next and pass it along to the next. That those type of letters don't necessarily make it into our Bible. And many people believe that Paul wrote a scathing letter, even more scathing than first Corinthians and one that uh, really caused uh, even more of a reaction in the church. Turn over to chapter seven and verse number eight. Now, the debate is whether or not what Paul's talking about here in chapter 7 and verse 8 is a reference back to 1 Corinthians or is a reference to a letter that came behind 1 Corinthians. I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't know. All right. My opinion is he's probably talking about 1 Corinthians here. But I can't say that for certainty. All right. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle or letter hath made you sorry, though it was, though it were but for a season. So he's saying that whatever letter this was, whether it was 1 Corinthians or a letter that followed 1 Corinthians, he's not sorry now that he wrote it, but there was a time that he had wished he hadn't sent it. Look at verse number 9. For now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after, a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourself, yea, uh, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that uh, our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. So Paul is, in essence, explaining his motive as to why he wrote the letter there in verse number 12. So Paul writes this potential second letter to Corinth, and we're left with the idea that the folks kind of were left feeling really, really bad about the way they'd been treating Paul. Really, really bad about their behavior. And so then in AD 56, upon the recipient of receiving this potential second letter, or possibly after some time of the first letter, the church repents of their treatment of Paul. The church repents of their treatment of Paul. Many believe that they actually wrote a letter of apology and sent it back to Paul, saying, Paul, you got on us really hard for our behavior, and we didn't like it. But you were right to get on us, and we were wrong for our behavior. We are wrong for the way we treated you. And so Paul then, in AD 57, writes our 2 Corinthians. AD 57, Paul writes our 2 Corinthians. What is 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians is Paul's attempt to finalize the reconciliation between him and this church. This church had been at odds with him now for seven years. A back and forth had gone on. This struggle, this this, this power struggle between uh, them trying to pull away and diminish him and, and belittle him and, and, and bully him even in some senses and, and, and uh, uh, undercut his uh, apostolic authority and him trying to stand up for himself in a way that was humble. And so here the church now is to a place where they're ready to make reconciliation, but not the whole church. There's still a small faction there that uh, doesn't like Paul. Paul will deal with them in the end 
of 2 Corinthians. So with that as the backdrop as to why 2 Corinthians was written, let's dive into the book and see what this book is all about. Notice point number one, Corinth's rejection of Paul. Corinth's rejection of Paul. Paul is going to deal with the fact that they had rejected him and talk about why it was that they had rejected him. Why? Because the problem can't be fixed until the problem has first been totally addressed. Letter A, notice their embarrassment over Paul. Their embarrassment over Paul. Uh, the truth was, they looked at Paul and they were embarrassed that he had started their church. They didn't see him as an impressive guy. In fact, they saw him as just the opposite. Many viewed him as a troublemaker. Many viewed him as uh, poisonous. He was probably labeled as someone with a lot of zeal and no knowledge. And those things about Paul just weren't true. Let's, uh, let's talk about why they were embarrassed over Paul. Notice first his poverty and prisons. His poverty and his prisons. Turn over to chapter 11. Chapter 11, and look with me at um, verse number 7 here. Notice the question that's that's posed here. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted? Because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely. I robbed other churches, taking wages of them, to do you service. Now, he didn't actually rob them. He took money. He took missionary support, in essence, from other churches so that he could be a blessing to them. And really, this is showing them up, in a sense, because they were probably a rich church, being a port city. And we'll see uh, uh, next week, as we look at the second half of the book, we'll see here that they were a well-to-do church that was very stingy with their money. But they viewed Paul as being this Poor man. Turn over to Acts chapter 18 and we'll show, I'll be, let me show you exactly uh, the type of man that they saw. This was the man that came in and started their church. Funny enough, Acts 18 is where we find the account of the church of Corinth beginning uh, uh, very back when Paul shows up and reaches the first few uh, souls and converts them and begins to group them into a church community. Look at verse number one. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he, Paul, was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, uh, for by their occupation they were tent makers. Now, just to jot your memory, we talked about Aquila and Priscilla when we talked about the book of Rome. Remember how that, uh, that Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome for five years? And there was this rift in the church of Rome when they were finally allowed back in. This was that window. Uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla had left the church of Rome and had come up and were living in Corinth. And they were tent makers and they were also Christians. And Paul was a tent maker and a Christian in a city with no church. So birds of a feather flocked together. They joined up together. And what did Paul do? Paul worked very hard uh, to make money by selling tents. So if you're looking at Paul and you're in the church of Corinth and you have money. All right. Over the last five, seven, five or seven years since he founded the church, you're looking at a man who, for the most part, is living hand to mouth. Oftentimes he's homeless. Oftentimes he's in prison. 
He's living off the backs of other churches who are giving him support. A lot of the other preachers that came in, they were wealthy. And so they looked at Paul as being this dirty, homeless, poor man. On top of being poor, he was imprisoned a lot. Look at Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, we find him in the city of Philippi, another city in Macedonia. And here he's getting ready to start uh, what would become the church of Philippi through his imprisonment. This was a regular thing for uh, 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 Paul to be so zealous for the Lord that he would just be thrown in prison over his giving of the gospel in hostile areas. Look at verse 16 of Acts 16. And it came to pass as he went to pray, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gained by Zeus, saying that the same followed Paul and us uh, uh, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but being uh, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that same hour. What happened after he cast out the demons is that the men who lost the money went and look at verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. And so what was happening here is that people were coming into the church of Corinth and saying, hey, what's the history of your church? They didn't want to talk about it. And, and, and they'd say, well, 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 who started your church? Well, it's kind of embarrassing. It was, it was Paul. And like, oh, you mean the guy that's always in and out of jail? Him? Now, you have to understand, we look at Paul as being this super Christian because we have the perspective of history. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have modern transportation. All they had was what was right in front of them. They knew Paul as being this guy who was constantly getting beat up and thrown in jail and living very poor. Why else were they embarrassed over Paul? Well, for his persecution, his persecution. This is something Paul talks a lot about in 2 Corinthians, is tribulations and persecution and suffering. He talks about it in a positive light because the Corinthians saw that as a negative thing. Look at chapter 11, verse number 5. And again, here in this part of the book, Paul is addressing the remaining troublemakers. And he's basically telling them, you all need to check yourselves for the way you're behaving. And so there's a few left in the church. The last part of the book, 9 through 13, he is, uh, he's hammering them pretty hard. Look at uh, verse 5 here and keep that in mind. And look at the sarcasm even here as he addresses uh, this. For I suppose I was not a wit or I was nobody. I was a nobody behind the very chiefest apostles. You can put scare quotes around chiefest apostles. He's talking about these heretics that are coming in the church and stirring up problems. And they have labeled themselves apostles. Here, Paul is calling them chiefest apostles. You can see the sarcasm in his voice as he's uh, pinning this down. Verse 6, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things, have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted, because I preach to you the gospel of God freely. I should have put 11, 5 through 7 down by the next point. Put up the next one there for me. Uh, his uh, public speakings. Go on past that one. His public speakings. Look at verse 6 there. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. Let me tell you a secret about Paul. He was a boring preacher. You remember the story of him going on and on and on at night and the guy fell out of the window and died? 
You know why? Because he didn't know when to stop. And he put people to sleep. Paul was very good at writing. Paul was not so good at preaching. Part of the reason why Paul was such a good writer is because God was telling him what to write a chunk of the time. That didn't hurt. But they had men coming into their church who were eloquent preachers. And Paul would come in and he'd preach. And people would sit there and go, man, this guy's talking over our heads. Or this guy's very base in his speaking. Paul was not the greatest of preachers, so they were embarrassed by him. Look at verse 6 and we'll see Paul's persecution. Or rather, um, no, I'm sorry. So he was persecuted. Go back to chapter number 1. Go back to chapter number 1. Let me show you an example of his talking about persecution in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the very beginning of the book, he's going to talk about making reconciliation with the church. And he, uh, look at verses uh, 3 and 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us, who? Paul and the church, in all our tribulation. Do you know that when uh, brethren are not getting along, it feels like tribulation for both parties? That's what this felt like for the seven years as the church was fighting with the apostle that founded. It was tribulation. Look look there. Uh, who comforted us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering, which we also suffer. And the suffering of Paul is well established. But they were embarrassed by Paul's poverty. They were embarrassed by Paul's imprisonments. They were embarrassed by Paul's seeming never-ending persecution. They were embarrassed by Paul's inability to be a good public speaker. Let her be noticed their embracement of other preachers. Their embracement of other preachers. So they're embarrassed of Paul, but they're impressed, impressed by these other speakers. They embrace them. Turn back over to chapter 11 and look at verse number 3. And we get the full context of the chiefest apostle's comment by backing up to verse 3 and seeing that Paul is talking about this, these chiefest apostles as being those that are sowing subtlety and acting in, in a manner of Satan. Look at verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds shall be uh, corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Aren't you glad the gospel is simple? And people want to make it not simple. They want to come in and complicate the gospel. That's what was going on in this church. Look at verse 4. For if he... That cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached. For if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Now look at verse 5. For I suppose I was nothing or not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Who are these chiefest apostles? These are these people who are coming in and preaching another gospel, preaching another version of Jesus. And so uh, the church of Corinth had rejected, they were embarrassed over Paul, but they embraced, they were impressed by these other so-called apostles. Turn over to chapter 12 and verse number 11. It says there, I am become a fool in glorying, ye have compelled me. 
For I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. What Paul was saying here is, you all have forced me to very emphatically uh, express my qualifications to be an apostle, and I have felt like I have had to brag on myself in order to reestablish what should have already been known, what has been written on your hearts, uh, a, a reference back to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, also mentioned here in Second Corinthians. And he's saying, I have had to brag on myself, in essence, to reestablish my apostleship because you all have embraced these super apostles, these uh, chiefest apostles. So Corinth's rejection of Paul, number two, notice Paul's representation of true Christianity. Paul's representation of true Christianity. Brother Mike, can you get me a bottle of water? Now, before we can understand reconciliation, we need to understand what true Christianity is. And Paul would take quite a bit of time. By the way, chapters 1 through 7, Paul's addressing reconciliation. Okay, but he spends a lot of time laying the groundwork to help them understand. Help them understand why it is they have rejected him and why it is they're wrong in rejecting him so that that reconciliation can happen. Now, notice first Christian leaders are letter A, not concerned with elevated status, not thank you, not concerned with elevated status. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse number 17. You get the background here? Paul's being, they're embarrassed of Paul. They've embraced these guys that come in with, with expensive suits and a different gospel and more eloquent speaking. And they have embraced these heretics in their church. Paul has written to them, Paul's reprimanded them, Paul's gone for another visit, and, and they have finally admitted that they're wrong, and Paul is trying to bring all this to a close through a final, uh, uh, through a final uh, attempt at uh, reconciliation, and so this is explaining how reconciliation works. With that in mind about those false prophets, those false apostles coming in, he, he's saying, look, Christian leaders are not to be concerned with, with money and nice things and, 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 and robbing you blind in order to be a big leader. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. For we are uh, not as many uh, which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, uh, be, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. So these are not to be people who are, constant, are concerned with an elevated status. Let me just say uh, uh, this on this point is within our church. Some people hold titles. I hold the title of the pastor of the church. We have assistant pastors. We have deacons. We have Sunday school teachers. We have a nursery director. Uh, we have other people who hold various titles. At White Oak Baptist Church, if we're going to follow a biblical model, it's not about how big of a deal you are with a title. It's about how big of a servant you are with that title. That's the attitude here. The pastor is to be the greatest servant in the church. The greatest servant in the church. He is to lead the way. 
And that is to be the case with the assistant pastors and the deacons. It has to be the case with the bus captains. It has to be the case with the Sunday school teachers, everybody. If you're here and you hold a title, it's not about the title. It's about the duty with the title. It's not about how, look at me, how important I am. It's, look what I get to do. Look who I get to serve. That's to be the attitude here. That's to be the attitude from this on down. And, and, and prayerfully here, that's how it works. Now, I did not go out of my way to seek to be a senior pastor for the purpose of having everyone look up to me. In fact, there are times where I wish I could crawl under a rock and disappear. There are times where I really wish that uh, I didn't have uh, uh, all of that goes along with uh, the, the responsibility of living in a glass house. I've I've come to a place where I have accepted it, but it was a long time of God working on my heart and saying, Richard, you're not serving people the right way. You need to change this and alter that. And and me and my wife trying to have malleable hearts and God elevated us to that spot. That's the way it's supposed to work. Paul did not choose to be an apostle. God knocked him off off his horse, uh, saw him saved and God called Paul to be an apostle. And so Paul was just doing what God had called him to do. Paul was not uh, not concerned with his status. Paul received his status because God had told him to do it. And God knew that Paul could be a servant. Letter B. Christian leaders are uh, concentrated on embracing servanthood. Uh, uh, Christian leaders are concentrated on embracing servanthood. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 14. It says there, now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God, look at this, a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. You know what that is a reference to is sacrifices. Sacrifices. Um, In the Old Testament, a Offering that was offered up of frankincense was brought sweet savor in the nostrils of God. And Paul said, my life is like that. I'm to be sacrificing myself for others. Interesting enough, in most of the most of the books that Paul would write, he opens up and calls himself a servant or a slave. In 2 Corinthians, he opens up, you go back and look at chapter 1 and verse 1, he opens up calling himself an apostle. Because they already looked down on Paul. And so he wasn't going to start out with something they had a problem with. He was going to start reinstating his apostleship. But he reminds them here that to be a Christian, to represent true Christianity, Christian leaders are to be concentrating on embracing servanthood. Christian, are you a servant? Are you serving others around you or are you too busy serving yourself? Notice letter C, Christian leaders are cognizant of eternal Sanctification. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 13. The Bible says there, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For unto this day remaineth the same veil taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But 
Uh, even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass uh, the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Here, what Paul is trying to do is he's saying that the old to old covenant, the Old Testament covenant, was given... Uh, 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 by God to the Israelites, and it was mediated by Moses. So throw that next slide up there for me. The Old Testament was mediated uh, by uh, Moses. Is that the next one up on the list there? Old Testament mediated by Moses? No? Okay, I asked you not to put those on the screen. Very good. All right, my mistake. The Old Testament was mediated by Moses. So I want you to picture this. You have God and you have the Israelites. You remember they came up to the to the, the base of the mountain and the thunder and the lightning came and God was trying to give forth the law and the Israelites came to Moses and said, we are terrified. You go up and get them. And God said, that pleases me, Moses. Tell the people they're not allowed to touch the mountain. You come on up into the mountain. And so Moses went up into the mountain and he got uh, he got the commandments. And what happened, when he came down is that the glory of the Lord shone on on Moses face. So Moses mediated for the Israelites. And because Moses mediated and he saw the hinder parts of God's glory, his face began to glow and to shine. But what happened is that the law on its own was insufficient. The law on its own was insufficient. The law that was given through God, uh, to Moses, uh, from God, to the people, that did not sanctify the people. That was not enough. All it did was show them how they were guilty. What Paul is doing here is he's showing them is that the new covenant was mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. So while you have God... And you have the Israelites with Moses in the middle. Here you have God and the Corinthians, which represent all of the New Testament believers. And who mediated between them? Well, Jesus and the Spirit did. Well, Moses had the glory of God shine on his face. But the glory of the new covenant was not shown on a face. It was embodied in Jesus himself. Jesus was that glory. And so now what we have left is not a law that's flangeling and failing. What we have is the Holy Spirit of God given to us to fulfill the work of sanctification in us that builds on top of the law that's complete. And so what Paul is trying to tell this church here is that you get to share in the glory of God. It's not just for Moses. It's for all Christians who are born again and have the Holy Spirit working to sanctify them. Now, who doesn't want to share in God's glory? We all want to share in God's glory. However, I said all that to say this. It comes back around to servanthood. If you want to share in the glory of God, then you're going to have to do the work of God. Letter D, notice, content. The true leaders are content with earthly suffering. True leaders are content with early suffering. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 3 with me. All this, I'm going to tie it together. I hope it makes sense here in a minute. For as much as you're manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, again, a reference to the Old Testament covenant, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. 
Now, that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of, uh, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly uh, behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, uh, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be, be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Paul is trying to tell us here that in order for for uh, this new covenant to be given, somebody had to suffer. Our glory in heaven was birthed through the suffering of Jesus. You won't be able to shine uh, 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 like the stars. You won't be be able to uh, have the glory of God on you if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus did not come and suffer on the cross. So while you're embarrassed of me because I suffer, let me remind you that Jesus suffered so that you could even have a church. Moses is saying, or Paul is saying here, is that true leaders must be content with some earthly suffering. And yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution, shall suffer persecution. If you're not suffering some sort of persecution for your righteous living, uh, people are not persecuting you for your right doing in your life, then you need to step up your game. Uh, the other thing I want to say here is that the glory of others will only be birthed if Christians are willing to suffer. Here's the other message Paul's trying to communicate to this church here. He's trying to tell them, The reason why I suffer is on your behalf. Because I have been willing to suffer, you have been able to benefit out of that. You know, oftentimes Christians look at the suffering that they have to endure, and they don't see past the end of their nose with it. God, why are you making me go through this? Did you ever stop and consider maybe God has you going through some suffering so that you can be a blessing to someone else? What salvation did you get because Jesus suffered? What great thing will somebody else get because you suffered? Through our suffering, others are made free sometimes. Through our suffering, we're able to be a help and a a blessing to others. To be a Christian is to suffer. And Paul is trying to tell this church, while you have been embarrassed of me because I suffered and you look down on me for that, I suffered for the betterment of you. So we see Corinth's rejection of Paul, Paul's representation of true Christianity. Notice number three, Paul's reconciliation with the Christians, Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthians. Now, Reconciliation is an interesting thing. All of that in 1 through 4, really uh, 1 through 5, for a build-up and a talk about reconciliation. In order for reconciliation to happen, letter A, notice it requires humility. It requires humility. Why is it that reconciliation is needed? Reconciliation between a, a brother and a brother in Christ or sister and sister or brother and sister is needed because of sin. Strife. Um, 
Sometimes because of misunderstandings, but usually because of sin. And before reconciliation can happen, one or both parties are going to have to humble their heart. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. It says, Therefore he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Just like in 1 Corinthians, where every problem that the church of Corinth had, it was a getting away of living the gospel. Here, Paul is going back to the gospel to say, how were you reconciled to God? You were reconciled to God first through the humility of our Savior. Remember Philippians 2? Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, just also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a man, Uh, He humbled himself, the Bible says there in that passage. Christ was willing to humble himself, abase himself. And through his humility, the opportunity of salvation was born. Here's the beauty of it. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. We need to be reconciled eternally to God because we as humanity blew it. And in order for that reconciliation to happen, first... God had to be willing to humble himself and allow his son to come to the earth. God, in the form of Jesus, had to humble himself and take on our sins on the cross. And that birthed the opportunity at reconciliation. But that reconciliation is not complete until you bring your humility to match his humility. And when both parties bring humility, Jesus has already offered it, both parties bring humility. Salvation is born. That's why Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, James tells us, and he will lift you up. Humility is required for reconciliation. If there is a problem between you and your spouse, there is a problem between you and a child, there is a problem between you and a sibling in Christ, it cannot be reconciled until both parties humble their heart and confess their sin. There's also a problem that's out there with those who want to come to Christ for salvation and they don't want to see their sin for what it is. Your sin is wrong. Your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. And too oftentimes people make a false profession for salvation because they never are willing to see their sin for what it is. Despicable and vile and that which nailed our Savior to the tree. And we must see our sin for what it is. And that ought to cause us to turn from our unbelief and turn toward belief in Jesus. That salvation is born through, I believe, that humility comes about from seeing just how despicable and horrible we are. And Paul is drawing a parallel between the humility required for their salvation to the humility needed to reconcile themselves with him. And Paul is saying all throughout this letter, listen, I'm sorry for my part in the strife, but you must bring humility like Christ did in order for that reconciliation between us to be complete. Let her be noticed. It's at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of Christianity. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Now, with that concept in mind, let's get a fresh perspective on these verses that are so often read, taught from, preached from, and memorized. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I would encourage you, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, 
that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, now that we are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, you were reconciled to me through salvation. Now it's time for you to take on the ministry of reconciliation. It's time for you to be willing to reconcile with others who are living uh, in, in strife with you, in problems with you. But again, reconciliation doesn't happen until both parties, both parties come with a humble heart in confessing uh, of the wrongdoing that brought about the original headbutting or strife. Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthians. And through this, Paul is saying, listen, we're fine. Because we have reconciled, but we've done it with humility. That point of humility, where Paul was even able to write the book of 2 Corinthians, came about when they saw, oh man, look, we've blown it. They wrote that letter to Paul saying, we blew it, we were wrong in the way we treated you, we were wrong in the way we were living. And once Paul received that letter, that enabled him to be able to write the book of 2 Corinthians, which we have in our Bible. This is a letter that tells us how Paul and the church had their problems Fixed and restored. And so a couple of takeaways as we close down the Bible study tonight, and we'll look at the second half of the book next week. A couple of takeaways as we uh, uh, head away uh, from the book tonight. Always have about you a spirit that looks to reconcile with everybody. It's what you've been called to. If someone has mistreated you, you need to have a heart of humility. And then when they're ready to fix it, you're ready to fix it. End of story. This holding on to things for years and not being willing to let it go, that is so far away from Bible truth. In fact, Matthew 18 teaches that God is going to turn you over to the tormentors. And I know a whole lot of Christians, they're saved, but they won't forgive people who've wronged them, and now they are mentally losing it. I believe it's an epidemic in this country. I believe it's a hard epidemic in this country. I've met many Christians who their actions don't make any sense. And what it all boils down to is they've got a root of bitterness and unforgiveness that runs deep. They don't have about them the ministry of reconciliation because they're not willing to humble their hearts. And so tonight, let's uh, bow our head and close our eyes. We're not going to have a formal come forward invitation. But I would like you while you're there to think, think this through. Is there anyone in your life? that you're not willing to reconcile with? Is there anyone in your life that you're not willing to work things through with? And if so, ask the Lord to give you that ministry of reconciliation and to break down your heart and make you humble. Lord, would you first help us to look ourselves in the mirror and help us to see how despicable and sinful we are in our nature. God, our sins nailed you to a tree. Lord, we've committed the greatest offense by living sinful lives. and We have experienced the greatest forgiveness in Christ. Lord, who are we to hold other people's transgressions or trespasses against them if, if and when they come to us and show a spirit of repentance and humility? 
And so, Lord, help us to embrace humility, not to hold grudges, or to love you and to prove that love by being a new creature, not a creature of wrath, but a creature of humility and forgiveness. Lord, embrace and press this sermon on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you for being in church tonight. Hope the Bible.